0: Lord, we thank you for James, we thank you for what you've taught to us through the book of Ruth up to now, and we pray now, God, that you will anoint his speech with your Holy Spirit, that we'll hear you speaking to us and that you will get the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Great to see everyone. It's good. Um, I know many of us would have been away over the summer and uh, maybe with family holidays and so on. So it's good to see you all. Good to be back together as a church family with a majority of us here. Um, I hope you had a, a good time away. I'm James. If you're visiting here, I'm part of the team here. So it's good to meet you if I haven't already. Um, we're going to be in the book of Ruth today. Um, we, we were hoping to finish it last summer, but I got ill. But I'd written the talk and I thought, you know, it's too, it's just too good an ending to a story to just, uh, uh, to not get into it so we're going to be in the book of Ruth chapter 4 if you've got a bible with you and you want to turn there if you don't don't worry it'll come up on the screen in a bit um next week we're going to have a run of 3 weeks where we just focus in on our life together as uh life church beckles and then we're going to get into uh, Matthew again we've been doing these little mini series in in the book of Matthew just looking at story, uh, Matthew's biography of Jesus's life learning from the Lord Jesus focusing in on uh, his life and learning from him. And <clears throat> so the, that series is going to be called um, Live Like Jesus. It's going to be focused on Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, How to Thrive in Life. Um, so that's uh, where we're headed. Uh, I wonder how life is uh, turning out for you. How is life turning out for you? How has it turned out how you'd hoped? Is the story of your life? reaching the happily ever after moment that you had hoped for? Is it panning out how you expected it to? Or or perhaps there's situations in your life that are a bit of a a mess. Messy situations, messy circumstances, messy relationships. Maybe your own heart feels a little bit of a mess at times. (coughs) This whole story of Ruth has been this journey of what was quite a messy situation for them. There was a scattering of people into foreign nations from the Promised Land. There was social chaos and conflict. There was a sense of emptiness, fruitless work. There was a famine. Bethlehem, the house of bread, was producing no bread at all. Uh, There was an end of a family line looking like it was on the horizon because there was childlessness, possibly infertility. We saw that in chapter... One, but what we're going to read about today is that there's a happily ever after at the end of the Ruth story. We've, we've already seen this kind of gathering in, people are back at the promised land, there's a greater social peace, there's abundance, there's fullness, there's fruitful work, there's no longer a famine, um, there's fruitful harvests. Some of those things have started happening and now we're looking for, is there going to be children, are there going to be growing families? Um at the end of chapter three, we got to the point in a story where Boaz has gone off to resolve a matter of whether he can marry Ruth or not. He's gone to find the nearer, uh, kinsman redeemer. And the idea in that culture was that if somebody was widowed, it put them in a very vulnerable position and death was a, was a very likely outcome for them. And so what they would do in those, in that, in that time, in that culture was that the nearest relative of the dead relative would marry, who was able to, would marry the widow in order to provide and care for her and her family. they're called the kinsman redeemer. It was a selfless, caring, loving legal act. And Boaz loves Ruth, wants to marry her, but there is a kinsman redeemer, a relative who's nearer um, than he is, and should take on the responsibility. So he's gone to see if he can try and resolve that matter. And so we're left with these questions. Will Boaz and Ruth get married? Will the love story be complete? We're asking, is the other redeemer who's nearer going to step in and ruin the happily ever after ending that we're all hoping for in the story? Will they have children? Will there be heirs for Elimelech and Naomi? Will Naomi be redeemed, cared for, provided for in her old age? Will the blessings of God for this family come true, and we're at a moment of suspense. You don't look like you're on the edge of your seat, but um, it is a moment of suspense in the story. We're in uh, chapter four, uh, we'll read from verse one, it says this, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. He turned aside and sat down. He took the men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down, and then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I'd tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. Okay, so this like a legal exchange. Uh, if you say it, um, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, to carry on his family line. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. <laughs> to confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was the manner of a testing in Israel. A bit like when you buy a house, you take the shoe off and give it to the other. No. <laughs> so that was the way that they did things. And that person became the unsandaled. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people... Legally, you are the witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Killian and Marlon, who were their sons. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance, that's Elimelech, that the name of the dead may not be cut off, his family wouldn't end, uh, from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Uh, that was important because God had promised, His, his command to Adam and Eve was, be fruitful and multiply. And the promises to Abraham would, was that your descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky. So it's in that kind of context that He's saying this. Uh, where did I get to? Uh, your witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and, and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, that's Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. They're like mothers of Israel, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that uh, the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son and then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter in law who loves you is more to you than seven sons and has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap. He's a, this child's a redeemer for her because in her old age, he's going to provide for her and care for her just as he, she's going to now care for him in his uh, childhood. Naomi took the child, laid it on her lap, uh, laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David now these are the generations of Perez Perez fathered ne- Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram Ram fathered Aminadab Aminadab fathered Na- Nashon Nashon fathered Salmon Salmon fathered Boaz Boaz fathered Obed Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse, this, and this is like whoo, Jesse fathered David the David King David the suspense is over. Wow! That's the ending. And The ending of this story is a happily ever after moment. It's a perfect ending to the story. It's wonderful. It's surprising. It's a happily ever after moment. And Naomi was widowed. She was childless. She was in a foreign land um, in Moab. She was poor, vulnerable. Now she's in God's promised land with some ancestral land of her own. She has some wealth. She has a family. She has a daughter-in-law who loves her and has provided an heir, a kinsman redeemer for her. It's going to provide an heir for her dead husband, Elimelech, whose family name is going to carry on. She's going to get the joy of day-to-day mothering of her grandson, Obed, who in his later years is going to return the favor and provide in care For her, there's a continuation of a family line, and there's a legacy that they don't know of, but we know now, because this story's been told to us, probably written in the days of King David, that her family line is going to include King David. And also, we discover in Matthew, the son of David, King Jesus. A community of supportive women in Bethlehem around her, did you see that scene? Where all the women in Bethlehem are around Naomi, encouraging her, praying for her, praying prayers of blessing and prophecies of future hope over her. It's a wonderful ending for Naomi, whose situation at chapter one was pretty horrendous. It's a great ending as well for Ruth. She was widowed, childless, possibly infertile, poor, she was vulnerable, she was a foreign Moabite girl, and the Moabs, uh, Moabites were the, um, the enemies of Israel now she's married to an honorable husband um, she has a child she's fairly wealthy they're landowners in the, pro- the promised land she's now considered a true Israelite no longer thought of as a foreigner not only that but they're praying prayers over her that she would be like the founding mothers of Israel Rachel and Leah she's going to become the great grandmother of the greatest king Israel ever has in that time king david and in matthew this moabite girl becomes in the line of king jesus and in matthew you read that you think wow this this girl that we have been reading about ruth has become in the family line of the messiah the promised king of israel and the savior of the world Boaz gets a good ending as well. He's an unmarried older man. Now gives up his family line for his relative Elimelech, provides an heir, cares for and provides for Naomi and Ruth, and appears in the family tree of King David and Jesus. Great endings. Redemption for all the main characters in the story. (coughs) And also there's this wonderful inclusivity. There's the women of Bethlehem who've gathered around Naomi, who've been through... The difficulty of famine. You've got the elders and the people at the gate who are involved in this transaction that goes on. You've also got the peoples of the world, Ruth, and Moabite, a, a Gentile, included in God's story. It's an amazing thing you also got this joy and celebration. The people and the elders are praying blessings over them. The women of Bethlehem are praying blessings over them. There's a party around Naomi's. It's a joyful, exuberant celebration of what God has done in their lives. And it's God-centered. The Lord doesn't actually appear very often in the story, but where he does, it's made clear that the Lord is the one who's provided the Redeemer for Naomi and for Ruth, an heir for Naomi and Elimelech. The one is, the Lord is the one who's been providing and caring for them all along throughout the whole story. He's the one behind the scenes who's been working in human initiative and action. People have been making decisions along the way, but the Lord has been in amongst it, working through their actions to bring about redemption, to bring about this happily ever after ending that we're seeing. So this is God's story. This is the redemption story of God. This is what he's doing. He's bringing about a happily ever after ending. And that's our story. When we become Christians, if we're a Christian here today, we've been grafted into God's story. And our story is a little piece of his big story. A bit like uh, Ruth has been grafted into Jesus' family line, King David's family line. So we too, when we were adopted into God's family, have been joined into God's family and our story has become part of God's big story, a bit like Ruth's story has become part of God's big story. And there's a redemption with a happy ending. Oh, lovely background tune to that. I should play to this all the time. You, think you take it, Roger? No, no. No, it's all right. I mean, if you were sat somewhere else, I could have pretended it wasn't you. But. Um. <laughs> Uh, the second thing to see is that this is, this is a blessing. This is a happily ever after moment. But the situation was a complete and utter total mess. It was a total mess. You read chapter one, it's just a complete and utter mess at the start. They've left the promised land probably out of fear. They've left God's people. They're living with God's enemy in Moab. There's a famine in Bethlehem. They're assimilating to Moabite culture and forgetting that their God is the God of Israel. And no children, there's end of family line, there's fruitlessness. It's an utter mess. It just looks total chaos. They're enjoying none of the blessings of God. In fact, what's described in Deuteronomy as the curse of not following God faithfully is on them. And that's what they're experiencing. But the key to the whole book of Ruth is redemption. That's... The whole point of the story is this idea of redemption. Redemption means to buy back something back that was lost. To restore something to you that you thought was gone. And God, in this story, redeems the mess of the whole situation. He buys back something that was lost. He's restored something that looks long gone. If you read chapter 1, you'd never think that chapter 4 could be possible. you think that's impossible, that's never going to happen. But it does, God brings this wonderful redemption to their stories. And in the, re- the interesting bit that I want to focus on to show us how big a deal this is, is the prayers that are prayed over them. The prayers of the people and the elders that they pray over Ruth is that she'd be like Rachel and Leah, like the founding mothers of Israel, God's people. And that Boaz's house would be like uh, Perez, who was born to Tamar and Judah that God said, be fruitful and multiply, and Perez was blessed with more descendants than any of the other tribes, and the tribe of Judah becomes the largest. But it's probably worth us just having a look at what Rachel and Leah and Perez's stories were like to understand the greatness of God's redemptive story. So are we up for that? You don't really get a choice in it, to be honest, that's what I've written. Um... Rachel and Leah's story is incredible. It's an utter mess. Uh, Jacob um, sneaks in in place of his brother Esau, and steals his elder brother Esau's inheritance um, and takes it from his father, Isaac. As a result, Esau wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob flees to his uncle Laban. He falls in love with Laban's youngest daughter, who is Rachel. Laban says, if you work for me for seven years, you can marry Rachel. Which seems to Jacob, it says, just a few days, because he's so in love with Rachel. So he happily works those seven days. But on the wedding night... Le- seven years, sorry. Seven days wouldn't be that long at all, would it? Uh, s- seven years. And in s- on the wedding night, what Laban does is he switches Rachel for Leah uh, or the way around. he switches Leah in so that he doesn't end up marrying Rachel sneakily because he's worried that Leah's too old and not going to be able to get married and so he sneaks Leah in there and Jacob is then told when he discovers this that if you work for another seven years I'll let you marry Rachel as well and so Jacob works for another seven years for Laban and then he ends up marrying both And thereafter follows years of competition, strife, and grief between their families. Until Jacob and his family eventually up and leave his uncle Laban. It's a total, utter mess. Out of that mess comes, I don't know if you've heard of them, the 12 tribes of Israel. (laughs) Kind of a big, they're a big part of God's story. And that's their beginning those 12 tribes of Israel become God's people. My people, he says. They're my treasured possession. They're his glory on the earth. They're the object of his love, his grace, his affection. That's the story of Rachel and Leah. It's a bit of a mess, but God works this wonderful redemption. What about uh, Perez? Ra- I think Rachel and uh, Leah's story pales into comparison uh, with this one, have a listen to this one one of Jacob's sons called Judah, marries a Canaanite woman and has three sons it gets a little bit complicated because of the names but the eldest is called Er. Ur. Ur marries Tamar but he's wicked and so he's struck down by God and dies so his second son Onan does a Boaz and marries Tamar so that she's redeemed to provide for her but because he so resents his first eldest brother er, who was wicked, he spills his semen on the ground so that she doesn't have any children and because he hates his elder brother who's died and doesn't want to carry on his elder brother's name. And so he is struck down by God and dies. Judah sees, what ha- sees what's happening and lies to Tamar about being given his third son, who's called Sheila, name for a boy, and not, not a woman, okay? So his third son's called Sheila, and he lies to Tamar about having Sheila when he's grown up. And he sends Tamar back to her dad so that she can be provided for. Sheila grows up, but Judah doesn't tell Tamar. But Tamar finds out that Sheila has grown up and that he hasn't given him to her. So she finds out and dresses up as a prostitute and lies in wait for her father-in-law, Judah, who when he's passing down the road asks her for sex not knowing that it's her she says yes but wants a pledge for him uh, from him that kind of as like a you know, saying that he will pay later on so he gives her a signet his signet cord and staff as a pledge for the goat which will be payment later on as a result of that tamar gets pregnant with twins by judah Judah finds out that she's pregnant, not knowing that she's pregnant by him. And thinks that she should be waiting for Sheila, who he doesn't intend for her to be able to marry anyway. But he says that she should be executed for it. Tamar says that the father of these twins is the man who this signet, cord and staff belong to. They belong to Judah. One of those twins is called Perez. Perez becomes more blessed than any of the other tribes. The tribe of Judah, as I said, becomes the largest. The kind of the best outcome. God says, "Be fruitful and multiply," and their multiplication is the greatest of all the tribes. And that is the beginning of the story of the tribe of Judah, <laughs> the greatest tribe, the largest tribe in Israel. Now, that is a total mess, wouldn't you agree? What a start to a story. And to think of the wonderful redemption that God brings out of that kind of story. And they pray in verse 11, May the Lord, make the woman Ruth, who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, may your house, Boaz, be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman, it sounds like a wonderful blessing, doesn't it? I mean, when you read the passage, you go, oh, these are wonderful prophetic words and blessings. But if you'd been there at the time, and you knew the stories of Rachel and Leah really well, and the story of Perez, and somebody went, you should be like, you're going to be like Rachel and Leah, and you're going to be like Perez. oh, uh, Okay, uh, I'll weigh that one. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not, it, it doesn't immediately strike you, oh, that's exciting. No, but what they're saying is, the total mess that your lives were in, may they become... Maybe they have the happily ever after that we see in Rachel and Leah and Perez's life. They're an utter mess, but God has done a wonderful redemptive work. So it's it's encouraging for us, isn't it? If your story, those questions asked at the beginning, if your story is a bit of a mess, if there's a bit of an ugly beginning, if there's mess going on in your heart that's difficult to deal with, if other people have sinned towards you and it's, causing a mess in your life and circumstances if other things have been done to you or if you've done things that have just kind of wrecked your life and made a mess of it this is encouraging isn't it unless of course you feel like you've done worse than Rachel and Leah and Paris but given the redemption in their lives isn't it so encouraging for us it doesn't disqualify us from God's redemption bringing blessing the happily ever afters out of total messes, full of lies and envy and evil and fear and insecurity. This is what God does. He redeems people's lives. He redeems our lives. And that's the story of scripture. It's the story of Ruth. And it's the story of our lives. The story of redemption, restoring and buying back what was lost Romans 5.20 says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that's certainly what it looks like in these stories we've just listened to, isn't it? Where the sin increased to like, just you cannot imagine like how horrendous those situations were. God's grace abounded all the more. And so if you ever feel like that in your own life, where your sin, the sin that's been done to you, or the, your own sin just creating a total mess, and you think, Wah! God's grace abounds all the more. And that's what faith... Faith is looking at situations like Naomi and Ruth's, seeing through the mess to redemption, currently unseen, but hoped for. Faith is rooted in the idea of God being our great redeemer. Being our great redeemer that no matter how messy it is, it, it doesn't end there. Faith says it doesn't end here in this total mess. God's bringing redemption out of it. Whether it's messy situations in life that are our own doing, our own sin, whether it's messy situations in our life that are caused by other people sinning to us, maybe uh, other sin that we're having to endure, or patterns of thinking and behaviour um, that we've inherited from others, usually a mix of the two. No matter what it is, God is bringing Redemption, this is what it it says in Titus, Paul writes this, that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself for us on the cross. We're going to celebrate that later as we come to eat bread together. He broke his body for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, if you've made a mess of some aspect of your life, if you're living in the consequences of your own sin, then just as God redeemed Naomi, Jesus has died. He's come to redeem us from our own lawlessness, our own sin, our own darkness that's wreaked havoc in our lives. I wonder if you're in a mess that somebody else has made. Their sin has contributed towards it. If you're living in the mess of other people's sin. Maybe there's patterns of thinking and behavior you inherited from others. Well, Peter writes this. Knowing that you were ransomed, same word as redeemed, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, so from others, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, which we're going to drink the wine later, representing his blood that has redeemed us from the sin of others. Just as God redeemed Naomi and Ruth from the consequences of Elimelech's and Israel's future ways, which brought scattering and famine and childlessness and so on, so too the precious blood of Jesus redeems us. The wine we're going to drink later redeems us, ransoms us, from the futile ways of others, so how does how does God work this in our lives how How are we redeemed from the mess uh, that we 're in? Well, the first thing is we repent of our sin, we confess, we own the mess that we 've made of our lives the the things that we 're responsible for. <clears throat> we take uh, ownership of uh, the mistakes that we 've made. The turning point for the sto- in, in the story of Ruth is in chapter one. Verses 6 and 7, when Naomi returns to the promised land. Redemption began there with repentance, literally turning their back on Moab, God's enemies, and turning back towards the promised land, returning to God's people. Sometimes we think, if we don't acknowledge our own sin, sometimes we don't acknowledge our own sin, I think, thinking that God will judge us if we kind of own it and recognize it and understand and take ownership of it. But the reality is that when we do that, God forgives us, isn't it? When we come to God and we own our sin, take responsibility for the the mess that we've made in our lives, God graciously forgives us. It's actually when we refuse to repent, isn't it? When we refuse to acknowledge that we have sinned and made a mess of our lives, that God's judgment still falls on us. Confession and repentance of our sin of our part in the mess, liberates us from the guilt of it. It takes the shame of it all and takes away God's judgment, which we deserve. The second thing we do is we receive God's forgiveness. If we're living in the mess of other people's sin, we need to forgive them. Because if we don't forgive them, we become resentful, and resentment leads to Bitterness. Unforgiveness takes root in our hearts and it grows into something incredibly ugly and can wreak havoc in our lives and in the way that we treat other people. And when you don't forgive what, what you don't forgive, you become. You might have heard that phrase. What you don't forgive, you become. Because if you don't walk out of it, you stay stuck in it. Ruth had to forgive Naomi's bitterness remember Naomi tried to reject Ruth and tell her she didn't want her help tried to push her away and yet Ruth had to forgive her for that she clung to her stuck with her through all the mess into redemption uh, the third thing we do is we put God first like in our hearts we make him first and foremost we prioritise his place in our lives and because God looks at the heart and he honours it It says in the Old Testament lots of times, things like this. This is in 1 Samuel. David was a man after God's own heart. That's what mattered to God. David was a great king because he was a man after my own heart. It says in Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart. 2 Chronicles, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for people who've put their trust in him. Honor him as first and foremost in their lives. It says this in Psalm 37, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Commit yourself to the Lord. Put your trust in him. Put him first. Resist fear and worry. Resist despair and hopelessness. Trust God that he will act for you. That's what Ruth did. She trusted in God to act on her behalf and bring the situation to redemption. And the fourth thing is, see the bigger story. One of the big points of this whole book of Ruth is that Ruth's, the, the big story of Israel is told in the other books, isn't it? At the end, it tells us in the story in, in Judges and, and in Kings and Chronicles, a bit of history of the people of Israel. But in this book of Ruth, we get this little snapshot of these people's story, this family's story, in that big story of God's redemption. And uh, Rod alluded to it at the start, that Ruth and Boaz's story is part of this bigger story, but they're unaware of what's actually going on, aren't they? I mean, Ruth and Boaz die, probably, not knowing that they were going to be in the family line of the great King David. They die not knowing that from their family line is going to come the promised Messiah. That in the Bible that we're reading today, we read their names And they died not having a clue that that was going to happen. Isn't that amazing? The most incredible, redemptive, big kind of purposes of God happening in their lives, they had no idea about. No clue. And they died not knowing it. I just think that's amazing. And yet we read it and we go, oh yeah, Ruth, good on you. Well done for sticking with Naomi. Naomi, well done for heading back to the promised land. Because that brought about King David and King Jesus. And we go, that's incredible. And they died not having a clue what God was doing in their lives on a big scale. And so perhaps it's for us a lot of the time, isn't it? We're just making decisions, kind of trying to follow God faithfully. And the reality is that we're going to die not knowing much of what God was doing through our lives and how we fitted into his story and his plans. And so this ending reminds us we're part of God's bigger story of redemption. The book of Judges ends by telling us, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and the book of Ruth ends by telling us that Boaz fathered Obed, Obed Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. At a time when Israel was in utter chaos and mess, what God was doing was bringing about King David, and ultimately King Jesus, to sort the mess of the world and our hearts out and bring redemption for humanity. At a time when Israel was in chaos, God was at work to provide the King, King Jesus, who'd be born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, become the bread of life, broken on the cross, his precious blood poured out for us, so that we could be redeemed from our mess and be satisfied by the bread and the wine that tell us we're blessed, that we're redeemed, that what was lost to us in our mess has been restored to us by our great redeemer, Jesus. The enemy loves us to go in on ourselves, doesn't he? Loves us to focus in on our mess, all the things we've done wrong, all the things that others have done wrong to us, that we've got a right to be angry about and justified in our resentment of them. That's what the enemy loves for us to do, to die from self-consumption. And God has given us these stories to lift our eyes above our story, to see his bigger purposes of redemption in our life, but in the whole story of humanity. Because you and I are far too small to determine meaning and fullness in our own story. We're far too small to determine meaning and fullness in our own story. We were made for something bigger. Doesn't that give you hope, just hearing the ending of the story and going, my life is not a success or not based on really what I do. It's the grace of God and what he's achieving in the purposes of all of creation, the whole story. And he's grafted me into that. And so my life now your life now has much greater meaning and purpose because you're part of his great story. And the good news about his story is you don't quite know how your story is going to end and it might still be a complete and utter mess. But when you read God's story and you jump to Revelation, he tells you the end of the story, doesn't he? And he tells you your story has been grafted into this wonderful redemptive story that ends in utter glory It's the happy ever after that everybody dreams of. Eternity with love, joy, peace, unendingly. It's just the greatest story ever told. And our stories are part of his story. Don't get consumed with your story. Lift your eyes to what the Lord Jesus is doing in and through us get our eyes on the fact that just like Naomi Ruth, Rachel, Leah, Tamar Judah, Perez, God is taking our mess, the good, the bad and the ugly and weaving it into his story of redemption uh, for his glory shall we um, still ourselves before the law we're going to just kind of respond to what we're been looking at this morning I think God uh, would want to speak to some of us who feel as though uh, there's um, mess in our lives and mess in our uh, circumstances or in our heart that we feel hopeless and despairing about. And you get to that place where you think there's just no way out of this. Or you've been sitting in it for a really long time. Nothing's moving, nothing's changing. It's a mess and it's not going away. And you've just sat in it. And you've been sat in it for so long you don't feel like it's ever going to change. So, if that's you, maybe just hold your hands out to receive from Him. The Lord wants to remind us today the mess you are in is nothing compared to what He has done in the past. Nothing is too big for Him. Every situation is possible for Him, every outcome is possible. He's the the God of redemption. He's the one who is bringing good out of uh, of messy situations. He's the one who's bringing glory and happily ever afters out of complete mess. So, Lord, we pray for those of us here who feel like we're just enduring mess and it's never going to change. We pray, give us hope. Lift our eyes to your bigger story. Help us trust in you to act on our behalf. Help us trust you to weave your goodness and grace into the stories of our lives and to bring good out of the mess that we often have to endure and live in. Bring us hope, Lord. And Lord, we want to uh, pray as well. uh, There'll be some of us who hear this story. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can focus in so much on some of the really small things in my life that really don't matter, but become very big in my heart and mind. I get angry about them. I get frustrated about them. I get resentful or bitter or hard-hearted about things. That in the grand scheme of God's redemptive story don't really matter, which he's going to resolve anyway. So Lord, we pray where some of us have got our eyes turned in, we've gone introspective, we're overly focused on small things, in the grand scheme of things are easily resolved and don't, don't really matter in the arc of your big story. We pray you would help us lift our eyes to you and to what you're doing in creation and in humanity's story. That we'd just lift our eyes from our own situation and enable us to breathe again and uh, move on with what you've called us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.